welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse 13. All right. Before we begin, or as we begin, I want to take just a moment uh, to remind us that the day of the Lord, it is not a New Testament revelation alone. Uh, A coming day of God's judgment, it is a timeless principle found in Scripture, Old Testament and New, first announced in Genesis after the fall. Uh, It is an essential belief of Christianity as God's judgment is what we trust we have been saved from, the Old Testament prophets warned of a future day of God's, of God's wrath where he will sift his wheat from the chaff and gather it into his barn. We see it in Zephaniah, it is in Isaiah multiple times, Ezekiel the prophet, Malachi, there's Amos, and uh, Joel chapter 2 and verse 30 is the source that Matthew cited in our earlier scripture reading. God spoke through Joel saying, quote, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will be about uh, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an Old Testament announcement of the day of the Lord. If you've been studying the Old Testament and days uh, or uh, periods of days. How much is a yom, a Hebrew day, always, how long does that always last? 24 hours, right? The 24 hour day. It is a day of the Lord, it is a moment in time. And the fact that the New Testament writers quote the Old, uh, it testifies to their harmony in understanding of this day of the Lord. Both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Uh, record Jesus as saying, this day of Christ's coming, the parousia, will arrive suddenly like lightning. That quick, just like lightning. And time and again in the Bible, we are warned by both Jesus and his apostles how this day of the Lord will come like a thief. Completely without warning, uh, like a thief. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 26, Jesus is recording saying, uh, much like we read in Matthew chapter 24, Mark writes, They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. It suggests it is not a secret hidden event. Revelation 1 and verse 7 assures when Jesus returns in the clouds, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So this is a a universal appearing. And then in complete harmony with Matthew, uh, Mark writes this. Then he will send 
forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Again, that is Mark chapter 13. All of God's elect will be gathered into the clouds. Mark also, if you go there, you will note he also says that this will occur after tribulation. And for just a a little more background on this day of Christ's return, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus describes it will be uh, like God's judgment that came during the periods of both Noah and of Lot. Everyone will be going about their normal everyday business. They will be buying, they will be selling, they will be marrying and giving in marriage when Christ returns. And there Jesus says there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Those who are taken are God's elect. They are gathered together by the angels into the clouds to be with Christ. Those remaining on earth are left to experience God's judgment uh, through bowls of wrath. Uh, And the angels gathering, gathering together the elect, this describes this this famous passage on the rapture, on this day of the Lord, which is also the coming of Christ, the parousia of Christ. Uh, And as we saw earlier during our scripture reading in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, those phrases are used together in scripture. They are together in Scripture to describe this same return of Christ, his his second advent. The term parousia magnifies the presence of Christ, Christ, the coming in the clouds. The phrase day of the Lord assures it will be a fulfillment of all the Old Testament and the New Testament judgment uh, concerning what was promised. Folks, this, this is the day of the Lord. And as I read our passage, as I read our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, you will see again these terms parousia and the day of the Lord used jointly to describe the same occasion. Before his description of our being caught up into the air, Paul has already used parousia or the coming of Christ three times in 1 Thessalonians, to describe Christ's return. He will use parousia again after this passage in chapter 5, and in the midst of all these references uh, to Christ's coming, Paul tells us in this same context how the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's sandwiched into the coming of Christ. Folks, scripturally, there, there is no divorcing the parousia from the day of the Lord into two separate events, though many contemporary preachers have done so. This is a large passage of scripture. You will notice the Apostle Paul speaks repeatedly about those who are awake and those who are asleep indicating those who remain alive at this point and those who have already died. And he does so all the way through verse 10 of chapter 5. This assures us that Paul is is speaking to the same subject 
throughout this entire passage. Uh, There are no chapter breaks, as I said, in the original text. Whether we are alive or dead, whether we are awake or asleep, all of God's elect will participate in this day of the rapture. And just like the other passages that describe this event from Matthew and from Mark, uh, it's a very public spectacle. Nobody, believer or unbeliever, is going to miss it. The Lord will descend with a shout, announced by the voice of the archangel Michael. Uh, There's also a trumpet that blows, as trumpets are always used to, to gain attention. Uh, There is little doubt there will be many loud screams on this day uh, by unbelievers uh, as chaos erupts for all those left behind. But just think of the car crashes that there would be if if the Christians were suddenly taken out. And I've seen how fast so many people drive. Yeah. Luke 21 indicates that some left behind will faint in fear after realizing God's judgment has finally come. I remember there are no chapter breaks in the original text. This is the day of the Lord in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, uh, comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, You have no need for anything to be written to you, uh, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. Uh, We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get uh, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, And as a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. So the topic is the same topic all the way through. Uh, discussing those who remain alive at Christ's coming and those who uh, have already passed away. 
The reason I read such a large section today, folks, is because context is still king. What is being described, described here is the exact same coming of Christ and the day of the Lord's judgment that we see described everywhere else in Scripture. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. There will be a sudden, a sudden catching up of believers by His angels as destruction falls immediately on everybody who is left behind. Our scripture reading from 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1 stated the relief to our persecutions and our, and our current tribulation. It will end when? It will end when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who not, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. Paul then goes on to describe in the same context the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. And it is again the exact same occasion as the day of the Lord. Folks, this isn't that hard. It all clearly points to one single cataclysmic day. A day where, where those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus will receive the penalty of eternal destruction. They do not receive a second window of opportunity for another seven years. Before, before what? Before Jesus would supposedly come again a third time? No, folks, that, that not only appears implausible, it's also not what these scriptures teach. This day of the Lord arrives like a thief, and nobody remaining behind escapes judgment. And Jesus says in Luke 17, it will be, well, it'll be like the day that the angels grabbed the hands of, of Lot and his family, pulling them out of Sodom. And like the day of Noah when the flood came and destroyed them all, Jesus says it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. There also, Luke 17, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. So there's no turning back. There, there's no going back. There, there's no second chance. And then he says, there will be two grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Folks, to preserve the idea, there will be a second chance for some who were left behind. Those proposing a pre-tribulation rapture suggest that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 describes an entirely secret rapture. You know, it's just, just like in the movies. Planes will crash without Christian pilots. Tractor trailers will plow into cars, drive off bridges like, like the Walmart driver. Sorry, Steve. As you suddenly vanish, the tractor trailers will be going off bridges. 
Millions of Christians abruptly disappear. Morgues and graves will have bodies go AWOL. But our unbelieving family and friends don't pick up on it. And it is proposed after all of this that seven years later the day of the Lord will catch them off guard like a thief? Folks, that's not right. That's not correct. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we are looking at now, it is proposed, it's the the only passage that that pre-tribulation folks offer as ironclad proof, an ironclad proof text, that they suggest guarantees this will be a secret pre-tribulation rapture. And then followed by a seven additional years before Christ finally returns. Let's look at it one more time to see if anything in this passage gives us the impression this rapture will be secret. In verse 13, it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, And with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That is supposed to serve as a proof text for a secret pre-tribulation rapture. Instead, to me, this looks like the same trumpet, the same angels, The same Jesus coming in the clouds that we see in all the other passages. All those that I've read that demand we must interpret this all as a very public spectacle. Wayne Grudem, who is a a distinguished professor of systematic theology, who is also very gracious to, to other views, you read his commentary or his systematic theology, you'll see he's very gracious. But Grudem says this, quote, It is very difficult to understand 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the only passage that explicitly speaks of the fact that the church will be caught up or raptured, to speak of the idea of a secret coming. It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Grudem states again, the New Testament nowhere clearly says that the church will be taken out of the world before tribulation. If this significant event were to happen, we might at least expect that explicit teaching to to that effect would be found in the New Testament. And certainly Jesus tells us that he will come again and take us to be with himself. Paul tells us that we shall be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and that we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and receive resurrected bodies. Then he continues, But each of these passages has been understood by believers throughout history as speaking not of a secret rapture of the church before the tribulation, but of a very visible public rapture or taking up of the church to be with Christ just a few moments prior to his coming to earth with them to reign. Grudem here draws attention to a high hurdle 
for the pre-trib view. It is not what the church has traditionally believed. The historic Christian church never believed that we would be raptured before tribulation. And this is because the church has historically recognized how Scripture repeatedly describes this current church age as an age of tribulation. And during some periods, Christians have even experienced great tribulation. And in the Scripture, the apostles have always described themselves and other early Christians as fellow partakers in the tribulation. Folks, and and this is the historic view of Christianity. And as I stated some weeks ago, I stated it in adult Bible class in the morning as well, on only three occasions does Scripture use the phrase megas thelipsis, or, or great tribulation, only three times in all of Scripture. It's Matthew 24, verse 21, Revelation 2, verse 22, and Revelation 7 and verse 14. In each of those passages, God's beloved elect are always portrayed as being on earth and present during great tribulation. So where does the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture come from? Uh, It's just a very brief history note uh, that is due. It came from an Englishman named John Nelson Darby. Around the year 1833, Darby proposed this idea. Uh, It was never... It was never a view that was widely embraced before Darby, uh, but afterwards others, uh, such as, like D.L. Moody, other evangelists that would travel to England and back, uh, they picked it up and helped popularize it. And by 1909, Darby's notes were printed in the original Schofield Study Bible. And the Schofield Study Bible is how it spread across uh, an America who was more than willing to be reassured that we will never have to worry about suffering any type of tribulation for Christ. Now, now whether you agree with the Darby view or not, this, this is the truth of how the idea blossomed. It arose in the 19th century. I can't say that no Christian before Darby ever proposed this or pondered the idea. Perhaps a few did. But everyone agrees, every camp agrees that John Nelson Darby is the father of the pre-tribulation rapture. Everybody agrees that. We are not bound to Darby's theological tradition. Um, Our elders, our primary concern, as I've spoken with the elders about this, is discerning what the Bible teaches. And Scripture teaches us Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We repeatedly see the church described as suffering severe afflictions and tribulations. The Apostle John, as I stated earlier, identified himself along with the early churches whom he wrote as fellow fellow partakers in the tribulation. And therefore, the church age has been a 2,000-year age age of tribulation. 
And during this church age, there's been at least a couple, I would propose, even more uh, occurrences of great tribulation. One of them occurred, according to Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21, one of them occurred in 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies and, and sacked by the Romans, both Gospels portray Jerusalem as having been left to desolation. Over a million Jews died and the temple was demolished. And this, according to Matthew, was a great tribulation. He didn't call it the great tribulation. He said it's a great tribulation. And in some parts of the world today, Christian persecution and tribulation remains very, very severe, even to dismemberment and death. In fact, I, I am suspicious, I'm suspicious, that the difference between plain old tribulation, you know, just being whipped and imprisoned and, you know, all the light stuff, I'm, I'm suspicious the difference between plain old tribulation and a great tribulation is the circumstances of a great tribulation can result in Christian martyrdom. The ultimate sacrifice, uh, death. I don't have a proof text for that, um, but there seems to be a distinction between Christians who persevere through tribulation and a great tribulation that can result in persecution unto death. Take that theory or leave it. It's not essential doctrine. I don't feel I have to defend it. It's, it's a theory. What I do believe I can defend, what, what I do believe I can capably defend, is that the 70th week of Daniel, announced in Daniel chapter 9, it does not describe a great tribulation. For those of you who follow such things, the 70th week of Daniel is not a seven-year period of great tribulation following the rapture. Rather, after the rapture, all the unbelievers left behind suffer God's wrath, eternally sent away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, this is what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 assures Tribulation in Scripture is not equated with divine wrath anywhere. In the Bible, tribulation is most often what believers endure while on earth. Divine wrath is what unbelievers endure when Christ returns. Also, Daniel 9 does not predict a flimsy, phony covenant that a, that a future Antichrist makes with Israel and then immediately breaks. Supposedly after the church has already been raptured. Daniel chapter 9 describes the promise of a new covenant. A covenant that the angel Gabriel calls the strong covenant. That the Messiah will ratify at the cross and afterward he will put a stop to all blood sacrifices and grain offerings. That happened in 70 A.D. Uh, when a man named Titus, a Roman general, sacked Jerusalem. And because Israel rejected the holy sacrifice of God's Son, God puts an end to all other sacrifices by sending Titus. 
Folks, this is all in fulfillment of Christ's Olivet Discourse. Is there that he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. These are the days of God's vengeance. Recognize desolation is near, says Christ. And concerning the temple, concerning the temple, Christ declared, uh, he declared, because Israel will not accept me as their Messiah, because they will not turn to me as the final sacrifice for all sins, for all time, and because God no longer accepts the blood of bulls and goats, Jesus said this, the temple will be, will be destroyed and there will not be one stone left upon another. Jesus was the final sacrifice. It's the reason there's a gold dome on top of that temple mount today. For all these years, preventing, uh, preventing sacrifices from being offered in the forms of animals. Christ himself offered, uh, offered himself as the one-time sacrifice for all sins. That's what we know from Scripture. And the book of Hebrews was written shortly before the destruction of the temple to warn ethnic Jews, you must not trample underfoot the Son of God and attempt to return to the temple sacrifices. That was the purpose of the letter of the Hebrews. Folks, that kind of puts the kibosh on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and restarting animal sacrifices as some would like to see happen. Israel may get some kind of temple rebuilt, but God the Father who gave His one and only Son would only deem any animal hoisted to Him in sacrifice as a complete abomination. A new temple in Jerusalem would never be God's temple. We know that because we are God's temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it literally says we are God's temple. There Paul says of the church, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Yes, I am taking that passage literally. The church is the temple of God. We are the third temple that God is building in you. Not in Jerusalem. Folks, I, I would not dare put one penny towards the building of a temple that would lift a bull or a goat to God as a sacrifice for sins. There is so much misunderstanding today about the temple of God. God does not dwell in temples made by hands. And they stoned Stephen for saying that. Later again, the Apostle Paul brings it up in Acts 17. God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. So before we progress to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, which will be in a couple months, and, and the man of lawlessness who, who takes his seat in the temple of God, 
Um, I'm going to do a full treatment of Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to go through the whole chapter. We'll do that on a Sunday so that you can understand all the speculation about the Antichrist, um, who he is. It, it's not, it's not uh, difficult to understand. Actually, it will be refreshingly straightforward um, compared to most of what we hear these days. A post-tribulation or after-tribulation rapture, as our elders propose, um, I spoke with them at the last elders meeting again because I knew this was coming up, and um, we propose a coming of Christ for his church at the end of this age of tribulation. And, and a day of the Lord where God brings wrath upon all of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that is not difficult to understand. It is not hard to defend from Scripture. It's virtually everywhere. What we, we as believers need to glean from the passage today, here's what we need to glean from the passage today. Jesus Christ is coming back to get us all, dead or alive. That, that, that's the original intent of this passage. That Christ is coming back to get all believers dead or alive. That's what it's intended to teach. Your deceased loved ones who believed in Jesus are not going to be left behind when Jesus returns. In fact, they will rise first. So Paul is clarifying that you don't have to remain alive until the day that Christ returns in order to be with him. You can pass in peace. Our loved ones can pass in peace. Uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ who have already died, folks, they aren't going to miss anything. They ain't going to miss a thing. That's the point. They're going to be just fine. And Paul says to comfort one another with these words and encourage one another and build up one another. This is the reason that we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at graveside burials. It describes the same rapture. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So this is the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this, imper or for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The purpose of the passage beginning in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, it is to encourage and build up. Sadly, it is now more often being used as a source of contention rather than serving as a course of comfort. And since around 1909, this passage is being used now almost exclusively to predict the, the, the return of Christ. Which it clearly says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, you can't do. As to the times and the epics, forget it. You aren't going to predict it. And this passage's primary purpose is to comfort us. 
we will all be with Jesus. Those who will be resurrected from the grave, uh, those family members who have passed in Christ, uh, there will be a resurrection for them from the grave and a future without judgment. That is the comfort that is offered in these words. There will be a judgment for everybody else who doesn't. But not even one of God's precious elect will be left behind. Because God is not willing that any of us who belong to him will perish. Oh, a whole, a whole bunch are going to perish on the day that the Lord returns. There's no doubt about that. But Peter is writing to those who are chosen and called by God. That's who the letter is addressed to. Those called and chosen. And God is not willing that any of his elect perish on this day of the Lord. The elect won't perish. And this has to be the correct interpretation of 2 Peter chapter 3 because in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses the circumstances in the day of Noah and, and God's rescue of righteous Lot as his working illustrations. Peter says, remember, they too had their righteous souls tormented day after day by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And for Noah and for Lot, it was, it was tribulation for them. And Peter says, therefore, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's 2 Peter 2 and verse 9. And Noah and Lot are the same historical figures that Christ uses in Luke 17 to describe deteriorating morality on earth before his coming. Isn't that interesting? Not surprising at all, actually. Peter and Jesus use the exact same illustrations. So if God isn't willing that any at all perish, boy, Noah and Lot are horrible case studies. For, for Peter to use when through the flood and through fire and brimstone, almost everybody perished. An estimated millions died when the flood came and only eight souls were saved through water. And with Lot and his daughters, the angels grabbed hold of their hands and snatched them out of Sodom moments before God's wrath fell on everybody else left behind. And Jesus says, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. These are the examples that Jesus provides to us for the rapture. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other will be left. Like I said, if God isn't willing that any at all perish, any, any, Noah and Lot serve as horrible choices by Jesus and Peter for their working illustrations. But if God isn't willing that any of his elect should perish, but is patient towards all of us who by his sovereign power will come to repentance before that day arrives, 
If God isn't willing that any of his chosen perish, well then Noah and Lot, they serve as the perfect case studies for when the Lord returns. They are examples of God's determination to save all of his chosen people before Christ returns. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his parousia? And there it is, the coming again. We now have the parousia, or the coming of Christ, referenced by Peter. Knowing this then and what we've read today, what would, you be, what would you expect Peter to begin describing next? If he's just announced the coming of Christ. Well, he says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. means don't grow weary in doing good. Be patient. Why? Verse 10. Because the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. When? In the day of the Lord. And since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for, he's telling us the Christians now, looking for and hastening the perusia of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we, we Christians, are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Folks, with that language, describing the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord, and with the illustrations of Noah and Lot, does Peter give any impression that this coming of Christ is secret? Or that those who, will be left, uh, those who will be left behind are going to get a second chance? There's no chance. That would violate the natural understanding of all of these passages. And like every other New Testament writer, Peter says we are to expect a sudden and unescapable judgment at the second coming of Christ and the destruction of ungodly men and that we who believe are looking for an immediate establishment of a new heavens under which Christ establishes his kingdom on a new earth where righteousness dwells. Folks, the next event on the eschatological or end times calendar is Jesus appearing on the day of the Lord. You can't predict when Jesus will return. We cannot read signs. There will always be wars and rumors of wars and people who are pretending to be Christ. There will be earthquakes. 
But Christ says we cannot use these to predict the day of his return. Nobody knows the day nor the hour. But Scripture never suggests that we cannot know the order of events. You hear it again and again. That, well, you just can't know anything about Christ's return because it's just so vague and, and you know, uh, incomplete. By the way, Jesus says, nobody knows the day of his coming. No, we don't. Scripture never says we don't know the order of events. Actually, it says we should know the order of events. Christ will appear. The dead in Christ will rise first. The angels will gather the wheat from the tares. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. We'll receive imperishable bodies. While we're in the air, judgment by fire comes on all who are left behind. Even the elements will be melted down with intense heat. Why? Because there will be a new heavens. And there will be a new earth where Christ physically reigns. And where righteousness dwells. And His glorified bride with imperishable bodies comes back down out of the sky with Him to populate the new earth. And He'll tell us the rest when He gets here. But no one is left behind. He says, comfort one another. And the historic church has always believed Christ's return is imminent. means it can happen at any moment. And there are no second chances. We've got to be ready today. I know, I know one person here who had to go to her children and apologize. Say, you know, I'd always kind of told you, you know, if I disappear somehow, that uh, uh, then, then you're going to have to look to Jesus and because that's what she's taught. And she went and apologized and said, there isn't going to be a second chance. Trust in Jesus today. For today is the day of salvation. In closing, just a little primer for Second Thessalonians. People who say a temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem before Christ can return... They're mistaken. God's third temple is being built right here, literally. Literally. Pinch one another. All right? Um, the man of lawlessness is already busy and at clandestine work in God's temple. But his identity will eventually be revealed, and I'll show, how you, I'll show you how that unveiling of the man of lawlessness fits directly into the day of the Lord when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Is anybody having fun yet? I'm going to print a copy of this and mail it to John MacArthur today. I'm kidding. You wouldn't listen to me anyhow. He is a great preacher, really a truly great preacher, an astonishing ministry in what God has done through him, but he is stuck in his tradition that his, dad, that his dad taught him. I've heard him admit that you know, growing up he was groomed uh, through Schofield Notes and Moody Press. 
acknowledges that. Um, he just refuses to question his tradition and what he's always been told. He's, he's also written a few too many books. Boy, it'd be really tough for him now to swallow his pride on that and go back and say, hey, maybe some of the things that I said aren't precisely accurate. Um, and it would be hard for him to acknowledge the position that I just shared with you is very compelling. Very, very compelling. The post-tribulation rapture is not crazy. It is not crack theology. This is what the church has historically always believed. And it is in harmony with what the scriptures teach. Therefore, I'm not ashamed of preaching it.